Welcome to Threats, a podcast from leaders about the changing sports media landscape and the conditions that threaten to undermine the traditional model. My name is James Emmett, I'm the editor-at-large at Leaders. And my name is Simon Bryden and I'm the head of sport at Cinemedia. And together we are going to be identifying the challenges keeping sports media leaders up at night. And alongside a handful of eminent industry guests, we're going to be suggesting a few ways they can sleep more easily in their beds at night. Simon Bryden, how are you? It's great to see you again. Great to see you too, James. Feels like um, it was only last week we were here in this studio discussing a another threat to the sports broadcast model. It was only last oh, week. It's just a fact. It's simply a fact. Um, yes, we are here again, gathered here to talk about the threats that are, are undermining the traditional sports broadcast model. To recap, for those of you um, listening to the podcast who might not have been paying attention in the first episode, we have identified together, me and Simon, three key areas that are threats to the traditional sports broadcast model. Um, Those threats are choice and price, viewing habits and Gen Z, uh, and fragmentation. And the idea is on each of the episodes in this series, we're going to focus in on one of those threats and we're going to bring in um, sports media guests to help us um, unpack them. And today we're going to be focusing on choice and price. Um, Simon, you're the man who has worked in this field for, I'm going to say, some time. Um, what do we mean when we talk about choice and price as a threat? Well, James, we, uh, uh, as is often quoted, we live in a cost of living crisis. Uh, I don't have to tell you or the audience that the price of media and the choice of media is widespread. And if you actually add up the price of what you need in terms of uh, sport, media and entertainment as a proportion of household income, average household income in not just the UK but around the world, you get to a frighteningly high percentage. There is so much on offer and at such a a, a price that this is obviously an issue for the established business models. Yeah, um, quite simply, too many offerings and too many opportunities to lose you to spend your money, right? Exactly. Um, you, Simon, are head of sport at Cinemedia, and you're therefore the perfect person to be um, co-helming this series with me. Cinemedia, of course, well, I know Cinemedia as security specialists in the sports industry. It always strikes me that um, certainly when it comes to piracy and... Um, consumers motivation to use pirate services that price must be a real driver for that you know it's something is simply too expensive why would i pay that when i can get this service for free um is that something that you are that that chimes with with the work that you're doing with what the industry is is saying to you Yes, of course, you know, there's various motivations for piracy, but price is clearly a very important one. You know, searchability, ability to find what you want. Uh, The the illegal pirate service is the ultimate aggregator of content and the legal services, by the sheer definition of their business model, uh, they are very fragmented. Uh, so uh, if you want to pay legally, it's expensive and you need a lot of services and the criminals can aggregate as the ultimate 
aggregated platform. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon, shall we bring on our guest for today to help us explore this topic in a little bit more detail? Yes, let's bring him on. Let's bring him on. Um, he is... Bonjour. Bonjour, yeah, indeed. Um, bienvenue à Sébastien Audu. Um, and Sébastien is a um, one of the smartest operators in sports media. As you might have guessed, he's a French man. Um, he has recently left Canal Plus, um, where he was for many years heading up um, digital for Canal Plus. He is a content technology rights specialist. Uh, we're specialist in lots of different areas, but he has a background in in content. He was a, a commentator um, to begin with, and then ran um, Golf Plus, uh, Golf Plus um, at Canal Plus um, before moving into pure digital um, role. He's working with all sorts of uh, different clients now. Let's bring Sebastian on. Sebastian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The first one's an easy one, um, hopefully, Sebastian. What's on your plate at the moment? Um, quite a lot, uh, in a good way. Um, no, I've been um, I've been working a lot with startups uh, lately. Uh, as you know, I'm uh, I'm a member of the board for Hype Sports Innovation, um, and since I left Canal, I used uh, all this. I should not say time off, but uh, had more time in front of me, and I choose to to spend quite a bit of time with startups, and it's been um, it's been a great experience. I always enjoyed, you know, discovering new technologies, talking to founders, and hopefully uh, learning a, a thing or two from them, uh, as well as sharing my quite. Uh, long experience in the sports media industry now. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know this, um, I think we're living in a startup era, aren't we? And um, there seem to be more and more people excited about what the possibilities are in sports media when um, new tech solutions can be brought in. Do you think maybe that's the the other, this, this series that, that Simon and I are doing here is all about the threats to the, the sports broadcast model. Do you think the other side to the threats um, facing the traditional sports broadcast model is that there's lots of opportunity for startups, for people with an idea and a, a sense of how tech can work. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's the big thing. And I definitely think that the league's broadcasters that will be the most innovative will be the ones winning it all when we definitely uh, are able to use all those new technologies that are flourishing uh, uh, at this time and oftentimes you really need to dig deep to really figure out what it will mean you know five ten years from now in terms of uh, experience but I've seen stuff that really get me very very much exciting about the future of uh, the sports media industry for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the big one then, Sebastian, shall we? The real meat of the series, the meat of this episode. What, I mean, Simon and I have obviously uh, discussed this ourselves, um, but what, in your view, is the single biggest threat to the traditional sports broadcast model? 
obviously, I'm going to have to mention Gen Z for sure and the fact that the new generation of sports fans are enjoying sports in a totally different way than the previous generation. Um, oftentimes, when people say that, they mean that in a very negative way. I don't, actually. I think they are, in many ways, more engaged than the previous generation with sports. They are just engaged very much differently. I have kids as a 13-year-old basketball fan at home. He he barely watched one or two games live in his entire life. And even when we're watching the World Cup, it needs to be maybe starting at the quarterfinals if France is playing to to have him reinterested in in, in a live sports event in front of a TV. So it's very much different, but um, also full of opportunities. And maybe right after that, I think that we are nearing the end for many reasons of the traditional way, because of the Gen Z and the the changing of uh, the way people interact uh, with a, a live sports event at home or even not at home, but I mean, I mean, outside of the stadium. I think we're nearing the end of the, okay, we're going to do a tender. I'm a league. You're the broadcaster. We're going to do a tender. Give me a billion. See you in four years. Uh, that has been that has been the main business model forever. I think it's not probably not the best way to approach that at this stage, even though, you know, it's easy to say that it's much harder to figure out what will be the good business model, but you you can you can see that there's a lot of disruption uh, coming to that to that business model for for many many reasons, uh, and not just the Gen Z issue that every sports exec is so frightened about. So so if if you could, Sebastian, if you could link that major threat that you identified, this this I guess is the Gen Z problem, um, the the fact that younger people aren't captivated by um, the, the type of sports content that um, their forebears, the previous generations, were. Um, it's competition, I guess. They're doing other things. Um, they pay attention and consume things in different ways. Can you link that threat to your um, assertion that the way that we, the, the way that the sports market works, you know, here's a tender for three years worth of broadcast rights in this particular territory, come up with the biggest amount of money and it's yours. Like, what is that model not serving for you know the, the problem that you identified there? Well, because I'm not sure that then I, I don't think we are close to the end of the value of live sports as of now. But if you fast forward like 10 years from now, will the live rights be the most valuable asset coming from the leagues? I'm not sure of that if suddenly it's not the most consumed asset from the league. Uh, so um, to me, that's the thing. We've been talking for years, especially in, in, in competitions that are hard to, to follow continuously live. For example, the Olympics. We've been raving. I'm sure you've wrote tons of articles about how the, the great uh, metrics coming from the OTT and digital from NBC and Discovery worldwide. I mean, insane numbers. Well, you know, at some point, if people are watching more and more clips, uh, maybe it's at some point it's going to have an, an impact on what has been uh, since forever the main business model, which is selling the live rights because it's the most valuable. So, yeah, I mean, at some point, uh, it will either shift slowly and peacefully 
or there will be major disruption happening with catastrophe on the horizon. I'm not wishing for that. I'm, I said it could happen. And obviously, I work in a market in France where we saw that. <laughs> kind yeah, of. of course. Yeah, give us some context on that. That, that was the last league R right cycle, right? Absolutely, it- where we had MediaPro overbidding basically everybody else, uh, getting all the major packages, basically because for the first time they were allowed to sub-license. And in the end, nobody would be willing to sub-license from them. They had to build a channel. Nobody would carry that channel. And after, what, four or five months, they said, uh, we we just can't pay the, the, those amount, and in the end, the lead I had to make a deal to get out of this contract, and which then led to Amazon entering the market. So I guess in the end, they were quite, uh, I would say, not lucky because they work for that to happen. But I, I should say that uh, it was still a good outcome to at least have Amazon enter the market, even though it was at a at a huge discount f- uh, from the previous uh, media pretender. Simon, the, um, the the Gen Z problem um, that Sebastian's identified there and the way he's mapped out the two possible routes to change for sports broadcasting, the, the slow, peaceful transition to a, a slightly different model that takes into account new ways of watching things, new types of audiences, or the catastrophe that shoves sport into a situation that it is not quite ready for. What's What's your view on that? Well, I think at times we can become obsessed uh, with the major sports who are struggling with the model. We live in a golden era for sports broadcasting and access, thanks to OTT. The amount of content for consumers is so vast and so great, it's able to serve fans in a multitude of ways. So the, the, the competition for eyeballs from traditional broadcasters to the multi-opportunities available. Sebastian talked about his son and the the NBA. That is because so much content is now available that would never have been conceivable years ago. So I think before we talk about the problems, let's just recognize that in terms of access to content, this is a golden era. Obviously, the big threat to the major sports is that model of the sit-back linear experience and uh, the, the, the sheer value of those rights, which, as we know, the French problem is unique. Some other markets have been under immense pressure with down rounds of, from serious billions in terms of small fractional down rounds. What those broadcasters need, of course, is competition in their markets to protect their position. And we've seen that with Syria in Italy, with DAZN entering the market, which I think gave uh, a strong competition on the last round. We yet to see what will happen on the next round. But the bottom line is, with the proliferation of OTT services, subscription services, The pressure for subscriptions and the pressure on consumer spending are creating an enormous storm for the sports rights market. And this has got two main problems. First of all, it drives a lot of viewers to piracy, the sheer cost and the ease of access of pirate services. And a lot of sports rely on sponsorship revenue. 
And if you go pure OTT and pure subscription, you are harming that audience for your sponsorship revenues. So I think a lot of sports need to look very closely, and some already are. We're starting to see certain rights in, such as in rugby uh, or in cricket that were previously the domain of pay TV, now going back and looking for a free-to-air major terrestrial partner to increase eyeballs and to increase or protect sponsorship revenues. The other issue that the sports industry in terms of broadcasting has to answer is participation. Everyone is looking to protect their future revenues with participation in growing fans. And there is definitely an issue in terms of accessing content if you are purely an expensive subscription-only channel. So there's, it's not just the issue that the revenues are under pressure. It's about balancing all the opportunities across multi-platform distribution from pay TV to free-to-air yeah. to social media. It, it, you know, this this problem that Sebastian identified, one of the sort of core threats, I suppose, to um, the, the model, this idea, take a 13-year-old kid who is, would categorize himself as a fan of a particular sport, but just would have no way of uh, even wanting to consume everything that was available to him in that particular sport. You know, it's happening to us as well as uh, older, more experienced people. You know, I'm a fan of particular sports. There's no way that I am capable of watching everything that is available to me. And as such, you sort of feel like you're drowning in content a bit. There's, I, I feel less inclined to pay for content because I know I won't maximise my subscription, right? There's no way that I can. So we're, we're like content is king, but we're drowning in this stuff. And it's almost as if, don't you think, the traditional rights bodies are valuing the live, still valuing the live element in traditional ways, while on the other hand, kind of swamping the market with all sorts of other bite-sized bits of content that aren't valued and aren't monetized in the same way. So to the consumer, it looks as if you've got all of these content options. The free ones are absolutely fine, thank you very much. Why would I bother to to pay for a subscription to something? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, and I think we see this, that the power of the organization to retain its rights or for its clubs to retain certain rights is very important. Uh, you know, I'm an enormous uh, baseball fan. I thought you were going to say something else. No, baseball. And of course, it's always had a, from the outset uh, with uh, BAMTech, a fantastic digital offering. But my experience in consuming baseball is fan-based. Mm -hmm. All I want to know is did my team, did the New York Mets win? Yeah. Then I want to watch those clips. Yeah. And I'm able to do that uh, fully through the great digital offering with, that baseball has. And then I can consume, you know, the, the data around that is yeah. fantastic. So, yeah. And you're I, paying for that, right? I, and no, that okay. is all free. Right. That is all free on MLB's app. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would need to pay for is the live content. and Which doesn't suit you. Which time zone doesn't suit, etc. So there is no need. I'm getting everything. I can see every home run. I can see every hit free on the MLB's app. I can read all the data. I can read the news. It is a great offering. But it's a fan base. You know, they play 162 games a year. You know, the, the idea, and, and of course their model in the US is more of a regional broadcasting model around, you know, for the NBA, they've so many games. It's a regional model based on fan. And 
increasingly, I think, you know, the idea that we're all going to consume the Premier League and people are going to sit back and just consume football. Oh, there's a game on, I'll watch it. I definitely see it with my children and myself. We're consuming it across Sky on our fan basis. We're following and watching the games that matter. So this does put pressure on that bundled package of everything, you buy it all, and it seems the live is everything. I don't think the live is everything, and uh, and people clearly want to see the highlights, the interesting, the fun from the other games, but they certainly, I don't think, want that sit-back and viewing experience. And I think the American sports have had the power to retain so much digital over the years, and uh, I've never quite understood how in these some multi-billion dollar deals they have been allowed to retain as many rights for broadcasters. And if the broadcasters are coming under immense pressure financially to return and recoup rights fees, then I can see some more pressure coming on the rights retention areas. Mm -hmm. Sebastian, you were going to jump in there on that point as well. Yeah, no, I think uh, Simon was mentioning the the more... market being more resilient than other and i think the american market um, which is one of the only still very much growing in terms of sports rights it's mostly due to the fact that you still have a lot of sports on free to air which is not the case in europe where it's mostly behind a paywall there's the regional thing that has a huge impact on sports where teams and leagues and federation are getting an insane amount of money for the big regional market like Los Angeles, New York, and so on. And in the end, that's a very much working business model for everyone. I don't think that's the case outside of the US, which is why we have uh, so much trouble. And uh, the, the American example, the American sports example is, is great for Europe, for example. I mean, the NBA is still very much selling live rights, even though most NBA fans will not be watching live games in the middle of the night. Yeah. So what's the value of that compared to all the insane amount of clipping and highlights and so on that you can watch for free? Yeah. I mean, where's the calculation, I guess? There must be uh, within broadcasters and within rights holders, there, there must be calculations being made on these really sophisticated and comprehensive content offerings now. You know, we're talking about the NBA the NBA's app is world leading. Yeah. I think the amount the amount Absolutely. of content and the presentation and discoverability of that content within that app now is best in class in all of sport. And as far as I can see, I mean I have it. I like the NBA. I wouldn't class myself as a super fan, but I am a fan of the NBA. And I have the app and it gives me more than everything I need um, for free. But my, presumably, me being an active sort of user of that app and uh, whatever, all the, you know, they've got the data on how much I use it, that will be worth a dollar amount to them, I'm sure, yep, right? Absolutely. So there are these calculations in play. What can we give away through a great offering for free? What's that worth to us in terms of sponsorship, ad revenue versus are we going to try and push this person to, to spend on live rights? Yeah, right. I agree, and and the thing is, is that different market needs totally different strategies, um, and um, uh, in some cases, even though we also are seeing, you know, a new thing in live rights, which is global deal. I mean, obviously, I mean, 
the buzz is still going on about the MLS Apple deal. Uh, people within the industry can't stop talking about it because it's such a landmark deal for the industry. Truly global deal, one platform, one uh, league, with uh, some tricky part like the the fact that you can have other domestic deals in the US and Canada, which makes it very interesting for Apple and the MLS because obviously Apple will have some sort of uh, wider exposition uh, for some games that will be the best teaser possible for uh, the overall experience and the MLS can still uh, work with this traditional partner uh, in, in the US and, and, and Canada market. So um, so there's room to have new and obviously probably more financially sound deal for everyone, even though, and that's another issue that we have in Europe, the regulations for the domestic tenders are still in, in many cases uh, a big issue for the leagues uh, when you want to do this sort of deal. Mm -hmm. You're right to point to that Apple uh, MLS deal. Everyone's looking at that, right? Everyone in the sports industry is watching how that plays out because that does give us another model. You know, DAZN has given us another model. uh, And, well, DAZN has given us something and another model will become apparent, apparently. But now MLS and Apple have gone in together. I'm interested in um, both of your views on this um, from within the industry. What's the best case and the worst case for that deal in terms of how it's executed and what comes next? Who wants to go first on that? Simon? Well, I have reservations that the demand is there globally for access to MLS content, quite simply. Um, I can see why MLS uh, have done it, and I can see why Apple have done it. That is one of the big issues, I think, for the big global platforms that distribute globally is the regionalization of sports rights. So for Apple's thinking to be global makes sense. But as Sebastian said earlier, a lot of sport isn't just territorial, it's, it's regional within territories. So I have severe uh, doubts as to the demand for MLS on a global basis in the face of the traditional powerhouse leagues. But it's brave, right? It's brave uh, of MLS. Uh, I think for Apple it's of much less of a risk. Uh, but because I think uh, you lose a certain amount of control and you lose a certain access to potentially stronger partners, specialist partners with built-in audience, built-in exposure. So I think it's risky, more risky for MLS. Mm -hmm. Sebastian? Actually, I'm not sure it's more risky for MLS because, I mean, it's not like it's one of the most watched soccer league uh, in the world. So what's the risk to go with Apple, uh, in particular since they can retain some sort of local deal uh, with regular traditional linear partner within the US and, and Canada, at least for some games. But yeah, I mean, I agree with all the reserve that you've mentioned, Simon. I think definitely that's a big issue. I will add the fact that it's optional on the Apple TV Plus subscription, and it's not not, not even the amount. It's just that it has another layer of complexity in a very complex world of multiple OTT offering and so on. And at some point, there's only so much subscription that you can handle. 
not even mentioning the the amount that you're going to have to pay per month. And so uh, there's reason to be skeptical uh, because of that. But I think obviously the marketing power, the fact that Apple can play with its all this hardware available uh, worldwide is, is very interesting for a league that is very much an outsider looking to take a bigger place uh, in the soccer or football world, depending on the, the side of the Atlantic that you are, uh, that you live on. Uh, but um, it's definitely interesting. And um, another thing that's interesting is that we're seeing uh, another important factor is that there's IMG in the middle producing everything. So you ha- you are adding really a third party producing all the stuff, which is very much different from the traditional broadcast model where Sky Sports has its own people, you know, doing their own thing. Canal Plus has the same thing. Journalists, reporters, directors, producers, and so on. And that's a new model uh, that is very, also very, very different and very disruptive for the it's industry. Right? Yeah, yeah. Super disruptive for the industry. And I think what it, it, obviously it remains to be seen how successful this is going to be. And I know that, you know, there have been teething problems in in getting it off the ground and and getting it going. But I think it does show a couple of things. It shows the rest of sport a couple of things. A, a genuine kind of global deal with with one of one new platform is possible there is an appetite from these platforms to do that b if you're brave you can do it you can put something together i mean it, there's a thin line between bravery and stupidity obviously but you know if you're willing to do it there are deals out there to be done and i think you know if you're in the business of changing models it is something to look at isn't it well if apple were really brave they would just have gone all in and Go for the Premier League outside the UK and go all in. Go for the big one. They've got to. They've got. They to. might. They might just <laughs> they do might. that. And you know, <laughs> on their market cap, it's like a cup of coffee. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm Max Barnett from Delta Trey, and I'm David Kushnan from Leaders. And in season one of the Blueprint, our podcast series on strategic thinking in sport. We chatted with strategic leaders from the Football Association, Formula E, Seattle Sounders, New York Jets, New York Yankees and Sky Sports. Fascinating in-depth conversations with people at the heart of conceptualising, executing and delivering on strategy. And great news, Max, we've got a second series. We're going to have another set of conversations and this time we want to dig into the heart of great strategy with people who are deep in the weeds of doing it day in, day out. Yeah, DC. And if season one was very much around the why and the what and some great conversations there, second season is really getting into the how of how people are executing strategy. Because it's often not publicly shared and uh, we're not really seeing the day-to-day in terms of the execution. So we're putting the call out to you, the sports industry. If you know someone who is doing this stuff brilliantly or differently, let us know. David.Kushnan at leadersinsport.com or at David Kushnan on Twitter or via either of us on LinkedIn. And join us soon for season two of The Blueprint. We're looking forward to it from Delta Trey and Leaders. Just going back to just taking this sort of organizations, individuals um, being willing to make change, to, to do something different, just to suck it and see, basically. Um, and going back to something Sebastian said earlier about, you know, the conditions are there that are pushing the need for change. It's just whether it's a peaceful transition to something else or it's a catastrophe that um, 
that forces the issue. Sebastian, a question to you about, I guess, about, you know, previous roles that you've had, obviously working at Canal Plus for some time, and the inner workings of a broadcaster like that. I I wonder, in your day-to-day, kind of running digital for Canal Plus, how incentivized were you to come up with new ways of doing things, with new models? Or, or how much was it sort of business as usual, what we're doing is working? Yeah, that's pretty much the second option. And I think it's not just for Canal, it's for the entire sports media industry that is traditionally very conservative uh, for many reasons. There's a very much conservative approach to the tech part because obviously the thing with live sports is that it needs to be working. All the 4K immersive experience, you know, 3D pixels or whatever, all of that is cool. But at, at some point, even if it's one camera in black and white, people need to be able to watch the game, you know. <laughs> so that's the main thing, which leads to a very conservative approach in, in many cases to the tech part. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the fear that nobody wants to, dis- to be the one disrupting its own business model. And it's, it's, it's the thing with the, it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. I always felt that it was so wrong for that industry. Because if you start fixing things when it's broken, you're gonna ha- you're gonna be in big trouble, and probably it, it won't be fixable at all. So I, usually, I had pretty much being. I mean, I, I, I actually I love disruption. I love when disruption is happening within our market. I think it's it makes for an insane amount of new possibilities. Uh, we were talking about the MLS. Uh, to me, they are the outsiders. So they don't have much to lose. They can only uh, go up from where they are, pretty much. And they can take more risk than the Premier League uh, or the League One. Or, but the League One can take more risk than the, the Premier League as well. Um, so it's good to be outsiders. It's good to be taking chances uh, to take risk and so on. But most of the time, I had to to fight and to, yeah, I mean, really, really do a lot of um, an insane amount of uh, office politics to try to move projects up the ladder uh, when it comes to trying to build new ways of monetizing sports, for example, or new types of content there. There's always the the, the fear that you're going to cannibalize uh, the main offering, Um you don't want to put too much out there for free. Uh, you don't want to do that because that's not the branding of the main premium channel. You know, when we went on Twitch, I had a lot of issues trying to uh, explain that you you couldn't do the graphics on Twitch like it was done for regular broadcast. It just doesn't work on Twitch. And people kept telling me, it looks bad. It's, it's not us. I said, I don't know if it's us, but it's Twitch. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a small screen, right? Like there's, um, a, there's, there's a really basic difference that sort of traditional broadcasters and producers don't seem to get, which is like, you're if you're used to producing live sport on bigger and bigger screens, you've got all the graphics and you know all the like this is how it's going to look and feel, and then the the fundamental switch to like people are watching this on their mobile or on a computer, it's much much smaller. There's not enough room for you to do all this sort of, you know, whiz Yeah, so it, it needs to be different. Um, it needs to be tailored to the community there that's going to be very much different from the one watching on TV. So um, uh, I feel it's a, it, it's a good fight. I mean, uh, it's not like it's painful. I mean, 
when you have that role, you, you need to be prepared to do that. But it's not like everybody is opening your door uh, within a huge uh, broadcaster saying, yeah, go ahead, be the, be the one disrupting us. That's not the general attitude. Simon, that must resonate for you, right? You're, you're working at the sharp end, kind of hammering on the door of tech departments at rights holders and broadcasters, you know, Cinemedia, obviously known for their OTT um, tech and, and specifically the security um, products that you guys have. And it strikes me that you know the scale of the problem and you find yourself up against a brick wall most of the time with people kind of with their heads in the sand, right? Uh- well, there's a couple of points there around the security and the technology. Let's just take the security one. Obviously, first with security and, and anti-piracy, we spoke about the aggregation and against fragmentation. Mm. I think Sebastian said in France, you probably need five sports OTT subscriptions now to to get by. So clearly... Well, that's, and let's not be around the bush, right? Like we've worked in sport for a long time. That's just too many. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I can I can tell you this as well from research we did with pirate consumers all over the world, speaking to the actual horse, so from the horse's mouth, mm-hmm. the the consumer that owns five legal OTT services is over ninety percent said they were also pirating content. Yeah. If you had zero legal OTT services you are under 50% likely to pirate content. So there is a direct correlation between your spending and your need to pirate. They're super engaged consumers, and the more they're paying, the more likely they were then to pirate. So there's definitely, for all of these rights owners and broadcasters, an issue they have to capture that legal spend. And so, as Sebastian's talking about product, they have to focus on product. He who has the best legal product will capture that legal spend. So I think it grist to the mill for a lot of what people are trying to do and trying to achieve, investment in product uh, and investment in capability and peripheral things around that engagement and fan experience does or should pay dividends. Obviously, the other thing is desirability of content. Uh, You know, uh, what is your content and how desirable it is? But on the tech... There's a belief everything would go OTT. Well, OTT is not necessarily the most cost-effective means to reach an audience. We're seeing DAZN launching now free-to-air on satellite in the UK. OTT is great, global reach, uh, you know, open up new markets, etc. But at scale in certain markets, there is mileage in the old model and talk, the disruptive model at the moment, or fast channels, so-called fast channels, free-to-air channels, I mean... To, that's nothing new about that's that. That's nothing new, yeah. a fast channel. It's just commercial television, sure, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So it's spoken about like it's revolutionary. Oh, we're going to set up a fast channel. That's simply an that's ad. Television. Fast, that's television. That's, that's <laughs> commercial television. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, you know, as people say, and that is a reflection if you need a if you need to go free to air you need a fast channel but of course what they're increasingly doing we see this with amazon and when i set up cycling television of course we had a hybrid model we had a hybrid model of subscription only we had a hybrid model of free to air only we had a hybrid model of subscription a week later it'd be free to air you've got to balance that content we were ott 
uh, we quickly realised we needed linear as well. People actually wanted to sit back. This is in 2003, four. They still wanted a linear channel. We'd stitch together highlights and magazine content. They still wanted a linear experience with an on-demand experience. So you've just got to manipulate and use your rights as you see fit. And we're seeing that improve. You know, we see Amazon running very hybrid models of of subscription VOD, transactional VOD, uh, free to air now with advertising supported on events. So they've just got to get much more variable and, and chase the best revenue and, of course, experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got time for a couple more. Simon, is there anything that you wanted to put to Sebastian? Yeah, Sebastian, I, you know, I'm, uh, I do a lot in security and anti-piracy. I wondered what your view on how much you felt uh, there has been a big issue, especially in France, around IPTV piracy and new legislation. Uh, I, I, I wondered how you felt that was impacting the market in France, given the fragmentation points that you brought up. Yeah, I mean, we know that, for example, when MediaPro came into the market with a new channel owning most of League One, but just one property, basically, uh, League One for, I don't remember how much it was, but people went, I mean, for many football fans in France, that was the one that was too much. Champions League had changed hands multiple times before, so people had to subscribe to new uh, offering. Um, and when Media Pro came in, that's well, well, that's that's too much for us. Specifically, since they didn't have, you know, it was tricky because they had like the ten first choices and all the other games, but then Canal Plus owned the twenty-eight other main choices. So basically, 28 weeks out of 38, it was Canal Plus that had the best game. (laughs) So basically, if you're really a League One fan, it's not like you you could just subscribe to MediaPro. You had to have MediaPro and Canal Plus and then other channels for the other uh, football. So that was just too much. And we we, that's the time where we saw uh, piracy go way up. And uh, I mean, I didn't look at the data, but it makes so much sense to to see that the people spending a lot of money are also the ones that are going the IP uh, TV route. Uh, it's nef- definitely not surprising, but it goes back to the fragmentation. And to go back to the first question around live sports, to me, the value of live sports came from two things. The competition between multiple players and the fact that people wanted the exclusivity. So you were basically spending insane amount of money, not so much to get the rights, but to prevent the other ones from getting the rights. And I don't think it's it's working in today's environment. And and to be clear, to me, it's like before you were you might be getting like 800 millions from one player. Maybe tomorrow you will get eight times 100 million from different players, each owning non-exclusive rights. And maybe one will be on YouTube, one will be on Twitch, one will be on OTT, one will be on Line Air, and, and, and so on. And I think that's one of the solutions to that fragmentation that doesn't work for anyone, even the people that have ways to pay uh, uh, a great amount per month because they, are, they can afford that and they are uh, football fans or sports fans. I think I think even when you can pay, you don't really want to pay. You don't think there's value in there uh, in terms of adding, keep adding new subscription. 
I think this um, it's, it's a really good point, Sebastian. And I think it goes back to what uh, Simon was saying about, you know, the data that came back from when, when you got, when you went and spoke to that horse yeah. in the market. Yeah. And uh, the finding that the more you spend on legitimate services, the more likely you are to spend on pirate services. I think that's interesting. It says something about fandom and how the offerings that we currently have in the market are not serving fans, right? They're, they're, they're set up to serve corporate strategies, I guess. But a fan, if you're a, you know, and we know from being fans of particular things, like if you're a fan of a particular team or a particular individual and you're a proper fan of them, you want to watch everything that they do and you're prepared to pay up to a certain point to watch everything that they do. And if you haven't got that offering legitimately in your market, you're going to get all the offerings that you do have available plus whatever else which technically isn't available. Yeah, I mean, the Motion Picture Association call it piracy as a service. Uh, they on the technology to create a pirate service, the technology to uh, charge for it, and the technology to aggregate rights on a pirate service, not just sport, but entertainment, uh, movies, to create a, a full turnkey TV replacement service illegally is very simple. And that is because uh, it is relatively easy to set up as a technology provider. But... I think to what Sebastian was saying and the broadcast model, it used to be big broadcasters have a multi-channel offering. Or in America, you'd have a, 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 you know, hundreds of channels available on, a, on offering. A lot of broadcasters are getting their value out of sports in other ways as well. So when you talk about getting a return on your investment or how much did the rights cost, you don't necessarily have to get all your money back on the subscriptions around those rights because you've got other offerings. People complained and complained, I don't want 500 channels on my cable service or I don't want all of these channels. I don't want all of, you know, I just want to, what I'm interested in, I just want what I'm interested in. So it went a la carte. And now they're all complaining, oh, hang on a minute. I don't want a la carte. This is horribly expensive. I want the bundle again. I want the bundle. It's the old accordion of aggregation and disaggregation, right? So. Clearly, I, I, just using an example, I mean, Sky have multiple services. They pay a lot for their sport. They must have a fair idea about the return on the investment they get on specific sets of rights, their fan base. But they've also got their entertainment package to market around it. They've got their broadband package. They've got, they've got other areas. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, managed rights, uh, both as my own channel with, with Racing UK, where we had a fantastic business model. And speaking to friends in the market, you know, they could value rights and say, well, I think these in this market, you will get $320 million, so that's how much we should pay. Mm. Will we win it for $320 million? No, you're going to have to bid 600 Great. Holistically, across the rest of the business, we'll pay $600 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, in the OTT world, that doesn't happen. You get what the consumer will pay for it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I want to end on a, a hypothetical, if, if that's all right. And it's hypothetical for both of you. Sebastian, you mentioned earlier the, when we were talking about Major League Soccer and their experimental deal with Apple, you talked about you know the position of that league relative to what's around it, which enabled it to take risks. And you pointed to the Premier League and its relative position, and that's in, in far less of a position to be able to take risks, right? It's a market-dominant kind of league. Um there is talk of a, I mean, as there always is, there's talk of a, a D2C 
a live DTC offering being built up by the Premier League. And when we were talking earlier about the model not strictly serving fans, I think the Premier League's is one that you can say that for. The Premier League's distribution model serves the Premier League and its clubs in that it is set up to reap the highest revenue number. But it does that by preventing lots of games being shown in the domestic market, which I would argue doesn't serve fans. A D2C offering might well serve fans better. From both of your perspectives, is this D2C offering a reality? And what do they gain through it and what do they lose through it? Who wants to go first on that? Sebastian, Are there, is there going to be a Premier League OTT? I think they're definitely thinking about it. But usually you always say, yeah, we're thinking about direct-to-consumer when you see the tender coming in the next few months because obviously that's a way of applying pressure on the market even though you know that there's probably not going to be an insane amount of pressure. Uh, so that's a good way to do that. In most cases, the direct-to-consumer um, initiative are for defensive purposes uh, and then to get more data from your uh, consumer uh, as a huge bonus. But it's rarely offensive. Uh, I mean, people really wanting to attack the market in a new way. What I'm sure of is that you are probably more eager to do like what the MLS did, like strike a global deal because you're going to get money up front. That's always the issue, is that are you willing to give up all that money up front to, to go your own way, knowing that probably you're, you're going to get more control, you're going to get more data, you're going to get more ways of monetizing and not just the basic subscription. So in the end, you could make more money. Yeah, sure. Are you willing to take, to take the risk now and give up all those billions that are on the table? I'm not sure, which is why I, th- I definitely think that we're going to see less exclusive deal in the future where you can have like a direct-to-consumer offering for the Premier League with some limitation, maybe not all the games and so on. And maybe like you have like a... uh, Or maybe, yeah, you have all the games, but uh, I don't know, uh, Sky also has maybe 20 of the base game of the season uh, and so on. And that makes sense. Uh, It's really tricky, but I think the way way that it is shaping, uh, I think everybody will look at, again, bypassing that, that issue of fragmentation because otherwise we're never going to be solving the, the big issue of does it make sense these days to spend this crazy amount of money knowing that the market will remain fragmented, people will not necessarily be willing to pay as much or even pay more and more money to, to watch the same type of games with, with the blackout happening in the UK, which is crazy looking from outside. So you, you need to figure out things that makes more sense. And in that regard, the direct-to-consumer offering definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon? Oh, the poor Premier League. Mm. They always get holed out at this moment mm-hmm. and everyone discusses what they're going to do. Well, that's the privilege, oh. of, the privilege of leading, right? Oh, why is their piracy so bad? Why have they got so much money? Why have they got... Well, I swear... Uh, Look, I think obviously the, the, the 3 p.m. blackout has been an issue and it's been an issue or a boon to pirate services because it's the only option. You know, I had a friend many years ago, oh, 13, 14 years ago, uh, wanted to took a model to them of potential regional blackouts, trying to replicate the U.S. model. Uh, would it be feasible to broadcast 3 p.m. games, OTT and 
blackout within say 50 miles of the stadium etc you know with, <laughs> with so many london premier league teams it's uh, you know looking a bit uh, difficult but any, anyway is there a way for them to get around that there's talk today they're going to add 60 more games to the offering is there a way to protect that sacrosanct 3 p.m kickoff time i think you know we saw this with the super league Still, for the UK fans, these clubs are all fan-based. They feel passionate about their club. We know the global demand for, you know, um, my son was in Uganda last week. All they talk about is football, you know. He'd be stopped at the roadside for a, you know, a road check for a bribe. And the first question to get out of it is, what team do you support? They'd say Man United. He'd say, I support Arsenal. I'm not giving you anything. And they'd all have a laugh and move on. You know, football was the language that you communicate globally but at the end of the day these are local clubs what i would like to see in stadiums is more ott television experiences to make that game day even better you're able to watch it live but you know we recently launched in uh, with a la liga team uh, an in-stadium viewing experience fully multi-synced feeds instant replay really low latency allowing the fan to watch the game live and in partnership with the spanish business Cellnex, who are a partner of ours to provide the connectivity to make that experience and the replay for the fan better so i think a lot of sports need to look at the fan experience on that game day because that is the core still as television revenues flatten and maybe less so with the premier league game day experience for lots of sports is very very important and we all think of ott technology as being you can go all around the world you can do this but where can it be used more for the fan and that helps protect the 3 p.m kickoff for the fan if he's getting an even better experience in the stadium using what they want most you know television with data to support it around it so i think where ott technology can augment the in-stadium experience is going to be a big one for the future so uh, it's hardly a yes or no if the premier league are doing an ott is it simon well you're not impacting the ott service if you've got uh, the audience in the ground that's the first thing yeah. the clubs want yeah. the first thing the clubs need is obviously the TV money, but they need their fans in the stadiums. The product and the value of the product globally requires it to be in demand. You know, we have we have big football tourism here that brings in a lot of visitors. People will be visiting just to go to Premier League football. So the first thing is protect that. The second thing is, will they go D to C? Maybe some limited offering, but I don't think it's not going to replace uh, what the current model is. And uh, uh, it would be my view. But who knows? You know, these are changing times. These are changing times. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you very much, Sebastian Odu. My pleasure, guys. Thank uh, you, Sebastian. And thank you, as ever, Simon Bryden.